Welcome. This is the October 5th, 2018 um, episode of the Breathe Easy podcast uh, brought to you by the American Thoracic uh, Society. I am Dr. David Ingram. I am a sleep physician and pediatrician at Children's Mercy Hospital, and I am here today with several guests. Uh, we're going to start off with Dr. Kevin Smith and Tamika Cranford. So, uh, Kevin is a licensed clinical psychologist uh, with a focus on pediatric psychology who has been working at the uh, within the sleep program at Children's Mercy Hospital for the last eight years. He is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine, has a PhD from Virginia Commonwealth, and uh, did his internship and postdoc at Nationwide Children's. And uh, Tamika Cranford is one of our respiratory therapists and sleep techs who has been a therapist for over 20 years, uh, specializing in pediatrics, um, and she's also certified in clinical sleep health. Uh, so, Kevin and Tamika, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tamika, why don't we start with you? So, uh, a lot of times you are the first uh, face uh, and real the, really the introduction to CPAP that a lot of our families have here um, after a child, is, after that's ordered for a child. So, can you talk a little bit about um, what is your approach to the first time that you're seeing that child and that family and maybe doing a mask fitting? Because that's a lot of times the first thing that, that happens with that child. Sure. Um, I like to try to do my initial mask fittings in um, our sleep lab so they can kind of get a feel for what the sleep room is going to be like also if they have not had a sleep study before. Um, bring them in and um, show them different styles of masks and kind of go at the pace of the child. So if they're really apprehensive, it may be a little bit slower than um, someone that's like, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, and so we go as far as we can. I show them the mask. If they allow me to put it on them, I put it on them. Um, if they don't, then we just slowly work on that. So it's really based on the child. Um, we go over a lot of information during that mask fitting. Um, um, I have them wear both nasal and full face masks if they'll tolerate both of them. Uh, we will apply CPAP pressure. Um, and our requirements in our lab is that a child is able to tolerate the CPAP on their face with pressure for a minimum of 30 minutes um, without consistently trying to take it off. So, And then that's considered a successful uh, mask fitting. Um, during that mask fitting, I do talk about um, different things with the different types of machines, um, some things that they can do at home as far as once when they get the machine at home to help their child get used to it, um, how they go about getting their supplies, cleaning of all the equipment, and all that other fun stuff. That's great. So when you are, you know, you have a lot of choices for masks. Uh, so when you're working with a child, how do you know which mask is right for them? Um, I usually give them several options. If they are, if they come in and they're definitely mouth breathing, walking in the door, um, I may lean towards uh, more of a full face mask for them just because if they're used to breathing through their mouth, that's usually where we end up starting. So and that's just kind of more of because of I've been doing this for a while, so I can kind of tell from from that. Um, ideally, we would like all our kids to be on nasal masks just because they're easier to get used to. And um, 
so it's not as difficult when you're trying to work on compliance at a later time with them. So. And when you're first introducing th these things and you were talking about, you uh, like to tell them about the features of the different machines and equipment, uh, what are the things that you particularly emphasize for them uh, where maybe you see uh, people making common mistakes or not realizing that a certain feature is there? Uh, what are some tips and tricks that you, you give families? Um, so I, I talk about the two different types of machines that we use around here, which is ResMed and Philips Respironics. Uh, Philips Respironics has a ramp button that you actually have to push to drop the pressure down so that um, it makes it a little bit more comfortable for the child, especially when they're first starting to use the CPAP. Um, the ResMed machine, there's no button to push. It's just on or off because their machine automatically ramps up. Um, we talk about humidity and how to adjust that. So a lot of times, even though Tamika goes over uh, extensive educational um, materials with them and shows them all the features, a lot of times uh, CPAP compliance can be a challenge. And a lot of times then we we bring on uh, Dr. Kevin Smith to, to help with that. And so, Kevin, uh, what is the role of a, a psychologist on a sleep team that is putting children on CPAP? And what's your typical approach to working with that child and family? Sure. Um, so we're trying to take more of a proactive approach. And so our first meeting is a combination of a behavioral consultation and an equipment assessment. And that's with uh, Tamika and myself. And that takes place in our outpatient clinic. And our goal is to see a family within two weeks after starting CPAP therapy. Um, and we start the session by asking the family how they uh, feel the first two weeks went. And uh, we also share the uh, CPAP machine download with them, which is really helpful because sometimes our, our impressions of how something went can be different from objective data. And we just sit there and discuss the results. And sometimes it's illuminating, and, and sometimes it just confirms what the family um, already thought. That's also a great time to ask additional equipment issues, and that's why uh, I really like having the combination clinic, and both Tamika and I can kind of handle different questions. So um, how that discussion goes really sets the stage for the rest of the session. Uh, and that's when I would implement kind of the psychosocial approach to screen for uh, current barriers to adherence and, uh, and help families anticipate possible future barriers. So areas that I would cover would uh, be general cognitive or developmental profile of the uh, patient, any learning challenges, uh, comorbid behavioral challenges, um, other medical concerns. I mean, we have families that sometimes have a, um, a kiddo with a complicated medical history, and you can get therapy burnout. You know, all of us uh, feel that our specialty is usually the most important one when it comes to uh, providing recommendations, and then the family gets home and has, you know, the, the most important recommendation from seven different uh, subspecialties. So it's important to step back and see where their family is at with regard to other medical concerns. Uh, look at family structure. We, um, how many caregivers are in the home? Are there older siblings that can help? Do we have a um, two-household family? And the, um, you know, the things that can make that difficult, taking the machine back and forth from home to home. We also look at socioeconomic issues. Recently, we had a family whose electricity was dis disconnected, so fortunately we have a social worker in our program that we can refer to. Um, and so those, those are the type of things that we, we screen for and really um, try to 
meet the family where they're at, set realistic goals, and um, and really applaud uh, the things that they're doing well and the strengths that they have. Excellent. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm seeing these kids in the clinic, we're talking about uh, is CPAP the right thing for them or uh, should we look at other options for treatment of their obstructive sleep apnea? Um, and one question that goes into that is what are the chances that the child is going to be successful with CPAP? Uh, are there predictors or are you able to get a, a, an educated guess in terms of is this child in front of me going to tolerate CPAP or not or is this going to be uh, such a, a difficult challenge for this child that maybe we should consider other options like surgery, um, for example? Well, that is the uh, $100,000 question, isn't it? Um, I, I wish I could say that when the family sits down, we know for sure if, if they're going to be successful or not. And actually, that would be better if that was even determined before they come to see us. But um, I know Dr. Um, Hawkins is going to talk about some predictors of adherence. Um, to, to, to my knowledge, um, just usage in the first week of treatment can predict um, longer-term usage, at least over a few months. Um, and then monitoring adherence in the first week of treatment and intervening in cases with low adherence can also improve long-term CPAP use. So I guess our approach is we don't know. And um, we, know, we, know bar we know there are barriers that uh, exist, but it, we really try to take it from a case-by-case, -case, family by family uh, basis and and start out with families saying there's there's there are sometimes obstacles, but we're here to help you work through them. So a lot of times uh, we have, children can have challenges with uh, tolerating CPAP and so we will uh, refer them to you or start the process of CPAP desensitization. Can you Describe what that is and what that looks like for a child and family. Sure. Um, you know, most kids coming into the program uh, aren't super excited about having to wear CPAP. You know, with some uh, some adolescents, they uh, they more easily understand the connection between uh, being able to breathe better at night and quality of life during the day. And especially if they find that their quality of life is such that. Um, they aren't able to do the things they want to do and participate in act, uh, activities that they want to participate in. They they're, can be excited about it, but most kids most kids aren't, frankly, and uh, I would say most adults probably aren't either. Um, and in fact, it can be pretty intimidating. So for the child who uh, is possibly scared or intimidated, um, you know, desensitization um, can gradually expose a child to the CPAP machine and mask in a safe, controlled environment and help them to get used to it in multi-steps. So what I tend to do is really start where the child feels most comfortable. So there are some kids that are afraid to even touch the machine. And so we really will start there and, um, and just let them get used to uh, handling the machine, um, placing the mask on their face without any um, air pressure. Some, some kids are, are okay with the mask and okay with putting it on, but it's when you turn on the machine that they get, they get upset. So, um, so at each stage, we just try to get a child used to, used to whatever component we're at for maybe at first five to ten seconds. Maybe that's, maybe that's all the child's comfortable with is holding the mask on, on their face for five to ten seconds, and then you build up, and then the mask and the headgear go on. We'll let them get used to that. And finally, um, for a lot of kids, it's turning turning the machine on. That's 
a big deal. So we just tell families that this isn't a race. There's plenty of time to practice and just try to provide them with kind of a structured way of doing that. And, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll have a patient in clinic who is maybe a teenager who we've, you know, Tamika's done a great mask fitting. It's fitting perfectly. There's no skin irritation. It's great. There's no leak. We've got just the right pressures for them. We've got them a beautiful machine, and they don't use it. And a lot of times I'll, I'll ask them, and what they tell me is, well, I just forget it. I forget to put it on. Uh, for that for that teen who forgets to put it on, what do you what's your approach to that? What do you recommend? Uh, I would first want to see if that's the case. Um, you know, I, and, and and most likely is, but there's sometimes just motivation issues, which I think is uh, is all of us have that at times. Um, if it's truly a forgetting thing, which I I do find that that happens frequently. I would say, I don't know if it's so much a forgetting thing, it's a falling asleep before they put it on thing. That, to me, feels like the, the main issue. And so um, I guess the, the big rule, and this is a, a tough one and one I deal with every week in our sleep clinic, is um, don't get into bed until you're ready to go to sleep. So that means no homework in bed. That means no watching television or cell phone or video games because that um, that is often when the teens are falling asleep and they genuinely do forget to put it on. Um, or at the very least, if you're getting into bed, then the first thing you do is put it on. And if you're going to do another activity, then you do that. You know, do that at that time. Sometimes uh, putting the mask on, literally on the bed, so that you would have to pick it up and move it um, in order to get in bed, is a great uh, visual cue that can um, help teams to remember on a consistent basis. I will add uh, as well is that after that initial uh, consultation, if um, if we look at the download and, and it was a tough couple of weeks, that's when I would schedule uh, additional ther therapeutic sessions to work through whatever individual issue there is. If a family is doing really well from the beginning and we're able to um, either if there are small issues, we're able to resolve them before the end of the session. They may be seen at a later date but would not have to be seen regularly. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Kevin. That's a lot of great advice there, even for people who aren't on CPAP in terms of uh, only using the bed for sleep and things like that. So uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm going to transition now to uh, our third guest, who is Dr. Stephen Hawkins. Uh, Stephen is a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician at Children's Hospital Colorado. He's also Associate Program Director of their Sleep Medicine Fellowship. Welcome, Stephen. Hi there. Thank you for having me. All right. So I, I was really excited to have you on here because you've published recently a couple of uh, great articles. Uh, and the first one I'm just going to dive into here is Correlates of Pediatric CPAP Adherence, published in Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine in 2016. And uh, this was fascinating to me because we were just talking uh, with Tamika and Kevin about is there a way we can kind of have a crystal ball and look into who is going to tolerate this and who isn't. Uh, and there's not a lot of data in pediatrics there, and this was one of the few studies addressing that. So uh, so tell me more about this study. What question were you trying to answer? What did you find? Uh, and and did it surprise you, or, or was it as you expected? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So, you know, as often happens, um, this study was born while considering actually a totally different problem. We were looking at our data set, looking at um, 
our compliance downloads and trying to answer the question uh, that uh, a lot of people think about, which is looking at weight gain after adenotonsillectomy. And we were wondering, do kids gain weight after being started on CPAP? And we were going to say, well, looking at the kids that are adherent to CPAP versus those kids that are not, and try to answer that question. And we really quickly realized that the data that we were collecting was a little bit more interesting, a little bit broader, um, and that we were having a harder time answering that first question, but that we had an interesting descriptive study that we could put out there. Um, so we had these demographics, the medical history, insurance status, and these kinds of things, and associated those with the CPAP adherence in, um, in these 140 kids. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are disheartened when they, you know, actually get their first report card. Um, and we were no, uh, no exception to that rule where we were disappointed that despite what we consider a robust desensitization program, only about 50% of our kids were adherent based on the current recommendations handed down from um, Medicare Medicaid. So it's just 50% of the population. That's pretty similar to... Um, chronic disease interventions across populations, uh, disease categories, ages, et cetera. Um, so just flipping a coin at that point. We didn't actually look at the short-term adherence um, as a predictor of long-term adherence. We didn't have access to that degree of, um, of data, of detail, um, which would have been interesting um, as that has been a, a long-standing um, predictor in the adult population, and we've assumed that it's true in pediatrics as well. And I think most of us continue to see that clinically. Um, but I would say that asking our durable medical equipment companies and insurance companies for extension has been helpful in that we often get those stragglers that just need a little bit of extra time to get used to the idea, or as Kevin and Samika mentioned, take some, uh, some of these steps to uh, getting adjusted to the idea of making CPAP part of their routine. So anyway, when, um, when we looked at the data, we were, we were surprised by a few things. We noted that girls seemed to have better adherence than boys, and that out of the medical diagnosis we were looking at, that those that had some degree of developmental delay had better adherence. Um, and we don't have a good reason for that. And we continue to debate it, and I think, again, you know, whenever you have these large enough data sets, things are going to come out. But we did wonder if um, parents' perceptions of their kids' health or severity of uh, impairment might somehow uh, affect the, the control that they try to exert um, or the, the, the level of interest that they carry in, in being adherent and encouraging adherence in their kids. Um, I think what was most interesting and what we were really happy to note was that um, similar to the adult literature, there were a slew of factors that did not seem to contribute to adherence being either good or bad, and that were uh, whether or not they were on CPAP versus bi-level positive airway pressure, the level of their therapeutic pressure, the severity of their underlying sleep apnea, uh, whether or not the residual AHI on a download was high or not. A lot of these things that we often wonder contribute. Overall, in this population, we didn't see that they did contribute. Uh, and lastly, um, Neither insurance status or ethnicity seem to be associated with adherence. And that's, um, that's been shown in larger populations um, and other studies that one or both of those do contribute to adherence. We didn't see that, and that might just have to do with the nature of our population being skewed 
towards a predominantly white or Hispanic population. That is interesting. And I, I was, when I read your study, I was, uh, on the one hand, also, uh, you know, surprised at the finding of the children with developmental delay had, had the same or better adherence uh, versus those without. On the other hand, I think for the from the perspective that you uh, gave, it, it does make sense in one way. So the other thing you brought up was working with DMEs. Uh, so when you start a kid on CPAP, what advice do you give to the family in terms of working with medical equipment companies and having a, a good relationship or a productive relationship with their medical equipment company? Because I know sometimes that can be frustrating. Yeah, totally agree. That's incredibly frustrating. And I think everybody has that barrier where you've got limitations or dictations from insurance. Certain insurance companies only um, will contract with certain DME companies um, versus others. You have geographic locations where, um, depending on where kids and families live, you might only have uh, one or two options, very limited options in those areas. So um, we've been fortunate enough to have a strong uh, team of program coordinators, respiratory therapists, sleep techs uh, that reach out to and work with these liaisons through the various DMEs. And you have to have those relationships to be able to say, hey, we're having these issues. We have these questions. How can you guys help uh, target this population? Um, that is particularly important or was particularly important when thinking about uh, the introduction of high nasal cannula, which I, I think we'll talk about in a little bit. Exactly. Uh, so despite all of your good efforts or all of our good efforts, and uh, sometimes we just can't make CPAP work for a particular child or family. Uh, and so a different option or another option for them is this high-flow, uh, heated, humidified uh, air via nasal cannula. So so you just published an article in Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine describing its use in, in kids who have obstructive sleep apnea. So uh, tell us about that. How, how long has this been a treatment option, and, uh, and, and how was it used in your study? Yeah, thanks uh, for that segue. I'm not sure actually who segued who, but um, <laughs> um, so <laughs> high yeah, nasal cannula has been around uh, – since the early mid-2000s, as far as I know, one of my mentors, one of uh, actually your and my mentors, Ann Halbauer, studied the use of um, a cobbled-together high-flow nasal cannula apparatus. You know, it wasn't a commercially available device at that time, but she and her mentor at the time at Johns Hopkins, Brian McGinley, who's now in Utah, um, were using this device and trying to see, does this help school-age kids and adolescents that have OSA? And they did show that it, it helped. Um, they started to use it clinically at that point, so it's been just a little over 10 years now that it's been um, floating around as an option. Um, its use has been pretty widespread in the adult population for COPD and treating dyspnea, uh, and it's been used in the NICU for uh, quite a while um, for premature kids with lung disease, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, for a number of, of uh, underlying diagnoses. Um, and in so we've... we've Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, I was, buddy. I was going to say we, we've been we've been using hyphenase Kenya clinically, so really just since this um, commercially available home unit has been available, and that's been for just right around ten years now. Um, and you know, you kind of mentioned it as being an option. I think you know it really is an option with at least two or three asterisks um, because it's still only been shown uh, or published to show that it's been helpful in a few dozen patients, and we clinically have only used it 
um, and, and several dozen patients that were chosen very specifically. Um, these were kids that oxygen alone wasn't adequate, wasn't sufficient, and that CPAP or BiPAP for whatever reason was not indicated or was really poorly tolerated despite our best efforts. So the kids that we were treating really were um, undertreated but needed something more and were really desperate to try something a little bit outside the box. So within those kids, uh, so in the study that you published, I think there were 10 school-age kids, uh, and how well did it work for them? Uh, it sounded like everything else had been tried, and this was kind of the end of the road or one of the last options for them. How well did it work? So Exactly right. So we published about these 10 kids, and, uh, and anecdotally, as I mentioned, we have a large handful of other kids that we've used clinically, and we were happy to see that their AHI, their oxygenation, their heart rate significantly improved. Um, oxygenation is a little bit of a tricky one because this device provides room air, but you can also uh, bleed in oxygen if needed. But even still, when we looked at the half of those kids that were just room air alone, oxygenation improved um, on both, both sides, with and without oxygen supplementation, which was really exciting. Um, we wow. suspect that hypoventilation would also improve. Only one of our kids had obstructive hypoventilation, but that kid did have uh, improved ventilation which we think is related to reducing the dead space with this degree of high flow. We were, we were a little bit disappointed that sleep quality did not improve, was not associated with improved sleep quality, sleep efficiency, architecture, or arousals. Those remained uh, the same. Um, but, you know, always trying to look at the silver lining, at least it didn't get worse on this high-flow nasal cannula. And when we're talking about high flow, I mean, how much flow are we actually talking about here? And and how do you titrate that for a given child? Yeah, um, so the, the, the one of the three potential H's in HFNC is the high flow. Um, and the, the high flow is limited by the cannula size. Um, and so a lot of people think about um, fitting a high flow nasal cannula when you're um, seeing a, a baby in the NICU. And those kids, at least at our institution, are sized a little bit differently. They're trying to get away with the largest cannula that they can physically fit in the kid's nair. Um, but for this, this um, indication, we're intentionally sizing it to occlude at most half to at most two-thirds of the nasal opening. And so there's intentionally a leak. Um, uh, it's intentionally an open system. And then, uh, again, that limits your, uh, your airflow, your flow rate, based on the size of the cannula. Most of the pediatric cannulas only go as high as about 15 to 25 liters per minute. Uh, the adult cannulas can go much higher, as high as 50 to 60. We've topped out at 25 liters per minute in children, and only one of our adolescents is on up to 40 liters per minute. We guessed about titration, and we do that very similar to the way that you would adjust uh, positive airway pressure. Um, if for whatever reason we have to start at a lower pressure, um, say five liters per minute, then we will look for snoring, paradoxical respirations, et cetera, and if needed, we'll increase by two to five liters per minute until we get that maximum flow. But um, our early data would suggest that the, the higher the pressure, the better, and so we try to start out uh, at our target flow um, based on the, the size limitations of the cannula itself. Or the and it, it sounds like this can work pretty well for uh, for kids who need it and have 
a few other options that are working for them. If is this something that can be done currently clinically, or is this only uh, being used in research settings? So uh, you know, is it available? Yes and no. Um, there is an FDA approval for the the device that I mentioned, and it's got a really broad approval. It's for quote unquote delivery of respiratory gases, which for pulmonary and sleep docs is um, just about as broad as it gets. Um, don't ask me the specifics, but from what I understand, there's no HICPIC code, which is some kind of a governmental uh, thing that I do not understand, remains a mystery to me. Um, but after we met with Colorado Medicaid and their medical director for utilization management, which is actually a, a third-party provider, um, we outlined our approach. We uh, showed them how we identify these kids that have sleep apnea, that are undertreated, where positive area pressure is not an option for whatever reason, and that we demonstrated with an in-lab sleep study that this high-flow nasal cannula was a viable option. Um, and when we showed them our approach and basically convinced them that we only planned to use this for kids that were in need uh, and were, that we, were, we felt like we were asking for high-flow nasal cannula with good reason while continuing to use otherwise standard of care when those were options, um, they agreed. They said that we've shown us that you're not going to take this lightly, that you've jumped through the appropriate number and size of hoops, um, and that they would give, um, give approval. And so we've had good success, but it took a lot of work, a lot of meeting, a lot of discussions on our part. Um, then the final part was, you know, getting back to the DME company aspect to it. This was where having liaisons within our program and having a DME company that was willing to take this on as a project out of all the DMEs in our state and area, only one of those was um, interested in doing so. So we um, were limited, but we're very happy that we have one dedicated DME provider that um, is knowledgeable, training their technicians on this uh, equipment, and is willing to provide and support these patients and families. Wow, it sounds like that took a, a lot of legwork on your part, but uh, your patients are, are benefiting from that now. Uh, so so when you are seeing a child in, in clinic who has obstructive sleep apnea, in what situations are you typically talking about starting CPAP versus surgery or other options? What's your typical approach to the child? I continue to go by, um, by our uh, academy guidelines and would say that the first step is to do a thorough uh, evaluation of the anatomy and to look for anatomic sites of obstruction. And so if there's obvious tonsillar hypertrophy or if my ENT colleagues um, evaluate the adenoids and there's obvious adenoid hypertrophy, I encourage that we eliminate that site of obstruction surgically um, if, if the family is agreeable or at least with the trial of medical management. Um, that is not always feasible uh, for a number of reasons. Sometimes families are opposed to surgery, or sometimes you have an older population that is uh, severely obese and you feel like the tonsils are not their biggest, uh, pun intended, uh, side of obstruction or issue at the time. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, you have craniofacial and syndromic children that, um, again, tonsils, adenoids, might seem like um, like a minimal uh, procedure given that we do it fairly commonly, uh, but in those otherwise more complicated patients or patients in whom you don't think 
resolution of sleep apnea is as likely, just removing the tonsils and adenoids, we're far more likely to talk about non-invasive positive pressure, um, either by CPAP or BiPAP. And so after you've put a child on CPAP, and maybe you're going to see them for follow-up in, I don't know, two or three months, something like that, uh, and they're coming back to clinic, uh, and they come in, and maybe hopefully they've brought their machine with them, maybe, maybe not. What's kind of your, your mental checklist when you're seeing that kid? Uh, what's your medical follow-up of the child on CPAP? So um, as part of our um, multimodal approach, I'm fortunate to have nursing and sleep tech or respiratory therapy support. And each one of us is going to look at a different aspect and then kind of come back together and, and consider the whole patient. So we're thinking about their medications. What medications are they on that might be helping with comorbidities, such as um, allergic rhinitis, chronic rhinosinusitis? Is their asthma optimized? And a lot of that ends up being based on medications, medication adherence, um, getting pulmonary function testing, uh, again, back to the airway evaluation, being very close and cognizant of what their airway looks like. Um, the respiratory therapist or the sleep technician is going to uh, look at the equipment. We hope we try to remind them to bring their equipment to every visit. We look at the um, quality of the mask. Uh, is it breaking down? Is the headgear stretching? Are the filters being replaced and cleaned? Is the circuit intact? These kinds of things. Um, and then finally, um, I generally will go in last and help take that data um, and look and see, is their skin healthy? Is their airway healthy? Is their nose patent? Are they having nasal dryness? Are they having issues? Um, and then going from that, really digging into how well are they feeling on it? Are they noticing changes? Um, do they notice the nights that they do wear it are better than the nights that they don't? Um, and helping to troubleshoot with the mask at every step of the point or every step of the, of the process. Um, some of the things that I, uh, in particular, try to keep an eye on is the, the nasal bridge, looking at the health of the skin, really wanting to try to avoid any kind of nasal breakdown. If they've been on CPAP for a long time, we try to make sure that we're keeping a very close eye on the mid-face. Um, we were very worried about iatrogenic mid-face hypoplasia that's been suggested by a few groups and that we have seen in a fortunate minority of patients, but that does continue to be a concern of ours when we have long-term CPAP use. Um, and then I guess the, the final thing I would mention as part of the evaluation is um, not just are they noticing improvements in the symptoms that brought us back, but if they're not noticing improvements, you know, what else can we make better? So again, going back to the drawing board, are they having nasal congestion symptoms? Are they having allergies or asthma that's out of control? Do we need to get them refer to a, uh, a program for weight loss or exercise? Do we need to involve our bariatric surgeons if there's severe obesity? And one of the uh, folks that I, I don't know if is as common to consider is getting the orthodontist involved. We love to involve our orthodontists to think about uh, rapid palate expansion in the kids that are just starting to have adult teeth erupt. Uh, and in the older kids, do we need to talk about um, are there kinds of orthodontics for dental spacing, braces, bringing the jaw forward a little bit? And if they're really um, mature adolescents, would an oral appliance be reasonable if they're having issues with CPAP? That's a that's a really nice point about the orthodontist, Stephen. That I'm a he also a huge fan of the maxillary expander. It can uh, improve and sometimes even cure their their sleep apnea. Uh, so as a as a part of that follow up, I'm sure you're getting a download. Uh, what do you look for in that download, and how might that be different than uh, when you're getting a download from an adult who's wearing CPAP? 
So, um, you know, back to the question we kind of brought up earlier, short versus long term, um, a lot of this depends on how long they've been on it. Um, and I think we have to be careful and know what we're looking for, a 30-day uh, picture versus a three- to six-month picture uh, might give you very different information. So a lot of it depends on how long they've been on it, looking for the briefer periods um, where I'm really hopeful to use the weeks immediately leading up to that uh, to help make more acute decisions. Um, if they've been on it for a long time, I'll look at the, the longer trends. Um, so, of course, we're looking at use. We're looking at patterns of use. Are they using it on the nights that they go to dad's house on the weekends as opposed to uh, mom's house during the school nights? Does that mean that there's potentially um, social barriers that we need to address, education barriers? Um, we're looking to see once it's used, if, it, uh, if it's used most nights, how long is it used? Um, what kind of average nightly use are they getting? Um, it's often to have patterns of Sure, it goes on every night, but it ends up on the ground by the side of the bed at some point, and that's information that helps us try to get to, um, do we need to help this kid get used to the mask in other ways? Use our desensitization programs, um, a la Kevin and Tamika, um, or do we need to figure out, is there nasal congestion that makes this pressure really uncomfortable? Is it intolerable, and that's contributing to them pulling it off in the middle of the night? Um, assuming they are perfectly adherent, then we start to look and see, well, is it helpful? Um, we do look at the residual AHI and attempt to make changes empirically based on that. Um, if we have a high residual AHI, I'm wanting to make sure that it's obstructive and not central. I don't know um, how much faith to put in the algorithms that calculate those, uh, those values, but we, nonetheless, that's what we have to work with, and so we want to make sure that if we make adjustments to the CPAP that we're not triggering central events, which we have certainly seen, and that we're actually overcoming the obstruction. Um, I might Exactly, pause there. yeah, and I, I, I struggle with the same thing. You know, how you have this residual AHI, how meaningful is this, how much do I trust these algorithms that are, you know, developed for adults on, on this child that is wearing this, and, and but at the same time, it's, you know, you can't bring them in all the time for tit retitrations. Uh, that's expensive. That's burdensome. And there's a lot of uh, uh, the, the, that the wait's already long enough uh, usually to get into the sleep lab. And so uh, it's part of the gestalt. It, it's part of you know it's yeah. part of the gestalt where we use it as one more piece of information. Do we need to get in their sleep study or titration, or are they doing great? And overall, it looks like they're wearing it pretty well with a low AHI compared to their diagnostic AHI. So yeah, it's, it's part of the picture. And kind of along that same line of, you know, algorithms, machines, what do you think the role is for auto-titrating CPAP in kids? You know, um, we are using this more and more, and it kind of gets to the reasons that you're mentioning, which is that um, access to sleep labs for titrations um, continues to be a challenge. And uh, we have patients that are, are growing or in uh, a particular case, which is involvement with a bariatric surgery group, we're hoping these patients are actually losing quite a bit of weight very quickly. And so I think there are roles for autotitrating PAP in kids. I think you just have to be really selective and not, um, not look at these as just small adults. Um, I think when I do use autotitrating auto PAP, I tend to use a more narrow range than I um, was comfortable using in adults. Um, particularly if I do have any kind of guideline from a, a brief titration study, um, I'm going to 
make it a, a pretty narrow three to four centimeter water pressure window. I'm going to follow those kids a little bit more closely. I'm going to plan to get downloads a lot more closely um, and make those empiric adjustments as needed. Um, I mentioned the bariatric surgery program where, um, again, if you have an obese, adolescent, more adult phenotype, I'm far more liberal using auto-titrating CPAP in that group, uh, where I feel like, if anything, this is now providing me yet another uh, piece of data where I'm hopeful that the therapeutic pressure is going to downtrend as the patient loses weight in the postoperative period and could be another marker for improvement. That's interesting. You mentioned using a narrower range of pressures. Uh, why? You know, I think it gets back to the idea of um, I don't know what the algorithms are looking at. And that's my own ignorance. I've not looked into it. I've not delved into it. But I've had enough of these kids that come to me and we see that we're triggering central events and maxing out at pressures because the machine is assuming that an event is obstructive. Um, and then we get a titrating study in lab and we see that we're actually triggering lots of arousals. We're triggering post-arousal centrals. Um, and that this is just basically creating a vicious cycle of uh, titrating the pressure. And so they're maxing out at whatever maximum pressure is on there. And so I really try to get a sense of what's the minimal pressure that I think is needed um, to get away with overcoming snoring, worker breathing, um, et cetera, and try to just have a, a narrow range that centers around that level, um, which I hope is going to account for fluctuations by season or illness and nasal congestion or position uh, and these kinds of things. So really it's, uh, it's out of nervousness that I don't want to overdo it with these, with these, uh, with these kids. No. Yeah. I, I, I do the same thing. It's uh, uh, and I, I think that I'm speculating, but maybe may tolerate it a little bit better than, uh, than these wide pressure fluctuations, but I don't know. That's just uh, to be determined, I guess. You need to do another study, Stephen. Uh, my, right uh, <laughs> my last question to you, because I know you're a uh, crunch for time here, is uh, so kind of we're thinking more globally about your clinic. Uh, how or do you track kind of PAP compliance within your clinic and, and in terms of all the patients that you see? You see a lot of patients. How do you keep track of it all? Not as well as we would like, to be perfectly honest. I think this continues to be uh, the thorn in the side of a lot of our programs. Um, it would be ideal to have every kid get regular updates on downloads and use, um, and that that would automatically go into a spreadsheet somewhere. And that right now is just not feasible for a number of reasons. And so, again, I think this is where um, you have to have somebody within your program, whether it's a sleep tech or respiratory therapist, that's working with you. Um, part of a desensitization program, it makes ideal sense or it makes good sense. Um, but someone that really is dedicated to following up with the durable, durable medical equipment companies, collecting this data, collating it, and then presenting it to the folks that are making decision changes uh, or that are making management decisions. We're fortunate to have a program coordinator and a team of sleep techs and respiratory therapists that collect these uh, adherence downloads typically over a 30-day period and are keeping track of those within our medical record. They're attaching them to clinical visits, um, often before the clinical visit as opposed to waiting for the day of. 
And so that gives us a chance to um, to review and the, uh, the data before we even walk in the room. As far as keeping track of it, our electronic medical record um, has made it somewhat easy after a lot of fine-tuning to be able to search for this. So um, in our charts, we're able to actually search for downloads. And um, that has made it a lot uh, more straightforward. Um, keeping track of that over time continues to be something that we would love to be able to show a little bit more cleanly. Um, and being able to do this a little bit more automatically is something that we would like to be able to do a little bit, um, a little bit more. As the downloads um, are available in the cloud remotely, wirelessly, um, this has become a lot more um, straightforward. And most of our equipment is now being set up to be wireless compatible or Bluetooth compatible and automatically download, automatically uploads this data from the cloud. And so our our team is able to get this information remotely uh, and without having to directly ask, get permission from the DME company or the family or have them turn anything on. It's an automatic process by and large. Dr. Stephen Hawkins, everybody. Stephen, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today and sharing your expertise and talking about uh, your publications that have been coming out. They're really exciting. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave.